All right, everyone, welcome back to A Thousand Cuts, the BSA podcast. I'm your host, Demetrius, here with my comrades, Chanel and Glenn. And we are glad to be back with y'all guys on the third episode. Uh, Chanel, Glenn, how, y- how y'all doing today? Y'all excited? Ready to go. Yes. Yeah, yes. I'm hanging in there. Glenn, how's everything with you? <laughs> Glad to be back. You ready to get a recording in? I've, I was worried we were going to be behind because there's just always so much shit going on uh, in the world. There's never a lack of news like we originally anticipated. And there's so much going on, uh, y'all. There's so much going on. So, we, so if we don't cover everything, please forgive us. Please have grace with us, have patience with us. We are doing the best that we can. Um, same thing with the audio. Um, we are still uh, working everything out on the technical side of things. We're still figuring out our groove with editing and everything like that. So if things aren't sounding, you know, super, NPR level uh <laughs> please please uh have patience with us with with that we're doing the best we can independently we ain't got no corporate sponsors y'all so this is what y'all get no uh, but uh <laughs> we ain't got no corporate sponsors listen you know the audio quality may go up but you're going to have a problem when when we're shouting out our fucking sponsor like Red Bull or fucking like Purple Mattress or some shit like that uh, <laughs> right, yeah. Everybody arcade. get a box mattress, man. They're they're comfy. Yeah, yeah. Yes, <laughs> that you're right, and they set us right. So to tap into our, yeah, our, our box sponsor, mattress Monster Energy Drinks. <laughs> yeah, our sponsor, Monster Energy Drinks and Red Bull. They're gonna be like, "What the fuck happened?" Okay. Um, <laughs> but yeah, let's let's try to get into some of this news. Let's get into some of this news. So dive right into it. Starting off. Yeah, man, let's jump into it because it's 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 kind of it's kind of a lot. It's kind of a lot that we got here. uh, News has been heavy for a minute, but yeah, go ahead, take us off. Yeah, and we'll also reference some things. We we won't get too in depth into it, but but we'll reference some other movements that's kind of going on globally. But the Insars protests. uh, So basically, this month, protests against police brutality have erupted in Nigeria after an online video leaked of Nigerian SAR. Uh, which stands for Special Anti-Robbery Squad, police officers executing two men in the street in front of a hotel in Lagos. Videos online also show SARS officers firing live rounds, tear gas, and water cannons into crowds of protesters. At least 10 people have been killed in the protests and hundreds have been arrested. The Nigerian government also attempted to ban protests in the capital city of Abuja, claiming that it was due to concerns over potentially spreading COVID-19. The president, Muhammadu Buhari, claimed that they would disband SARS and replace it with a new unit called Special Weapons and Tactics, or SWAT. The police chief of Nigeria ordered the release of all demonstrators who were arrested during the protests, giving into one of the movement's major demands. However, demonstrators and activists on the ground are, of course, still skeptical, wanting an overall systemic change of their policing institutions rather than a change of their name or appearance. It's very unfortunate that the people of Nigeria are going through the same bullshit that we are here in the States. Further investigation into the murder of local Portland anti-fascist activist Michael Rennell by U.S. Marshals reveals that this was a naked state-sanctioned execution and assassination, as we suspected, rather than an attempt to capture Rennell. An article in the New York Times reports that, quote, in interviews with 22 people who were near the scene, all but one said they 
did not hear officers identify themselves or give any commands before opening fire. In their official statements, not yet made public, the officers offered differing accounts of whether they saw Mr. Rynell with a weapon. One told investigators he thought he saw Mr. Rynell raise a gun inside the vehicle before the firing began, but two others said they did not. Mr. Rynell did have a .380 caliber handgun on him when he was killed, according to the county sheriff's team that is running a criminal homicide investigation into Mr. Rynell's death. But the weapon was found in his pocket. An AR-style rifle was found apparently untouched in a bag in his car. Five eyewitnesses in interviews uh, said that the gunfire began the instant the vehicles arrived. None of them saw Mr. Rynell holding a weapon. A single shell casing of the same caliber as the bullet he was carrying was found inside his car. Garrett Lewis, who watched the shooting begin while trying to get his eight-year-old son out of the line of fire, said the officers arrived with such speed and violence that he initially assumed that they were drug dealers gunning down a foe until he saw their law enforcement vests. I respect cops to the utmost, but things were definitely in no way, shape, or form done properly, Mr. Lewis said. The U.S. Marshal Service declined to comment for this article, of course, citing the pending investigation. The agency previously said that it had attempted to peacefully arrest Mr. Rynell and that he had threatened the lives of law enforcement officers. President Trump, who has described the racial justice protests that have roared the nation as the work of lawless criminals, praised the operation. Uh, this guy was a violent criminal and the U.S. Marshals killed him, President Trump told Fox News. And I will tell you something, that's the way it has to be. There has to be retribution when you have crime like this, end quote. Yeah. We live in wild times, y'all. It's wild. If it's not, if it's not clear yet. Ridiculous. Naked yeah. as fuck. <laughs> Shit is getting to a point. Naked as fuck assassinations. I mean, you can literally target this one anti-fascist who rightfully killed another fascist. But you can't track down people like all the fucking Kyle Rittenhouses that are germinating right now. That's that's amazing. Mm -hmm. That is amazing. What else is amazing is the fact that coronavirus is spiking globally, uh, is causing spikes in child labor. Due to the pandemic, shutting down schools and placing education systems on hold, children around the world are being forced into full-time labor alongside their parents. From India, Mexico, Kenya, Bolivia, and Paraguay, children are taking up jobs in mining, carpentry, brick making, working rock quarries, and unfortunately, sex work. An article from Associated Press reports that at a quarry in Nairobi, Florence, Mambua works alongside her children aged 7, 10, and 12. Mambua lost her cleaning job at a private school when the pandemic hit, and the family doesn't have the resources for the children to learn online. So together they crush rock, each earning about 65 cents a day. I have to work with them because they need to eat and yet I make little money. When we work as a team, we can make enough money for our lunch, breakfast, and dinner, Momboa said. Child labor is illegal in Kenya, but so is child prostitution, and it too has thrived since school closed. Mary Maguri, a former sex worker turned activist through her night nurse organization, says up to 1,000 schoolgirls have become sex workers in the three Nairobi neighborhoods she monitors since schools shut in March. The youngest, she said, was 11. In India, Dahanajay Tingle fears that millions more children will fall back into trafficking child labor and child marriage because the economic crisis is looming large. Its executive director of 
Bak Pan Bakao Andalan, a children's rights group whose founder, Kalish Setayarthi, won the Nomil Peace Prize in 2014. Tengal has watched with horror as child labor grows in a country that already has one of the world's worst records. A harsh nationwide lockdown imposed in March pummeled the Indian economy and, pu- and pushed millions of people into poverty, forcing many poor families to put their children to work to make ends meet. When the economy opened, tens of thousands of children took to jobs in farms and factories. This is a serious problem, he said. Experts say in the past, most students who have missed class because of crises like the Ebola epidemic return when schools reopened. But the longer the crisis drags on, the less likely they will go back. Liana Morita, a researcher at the Autonomous University of Chiapas, Mexico, said that even more than before, the pandemic has turned education into a luxury. Many parents opt for, you're going to work to help me at home because right now we really need it. End quote. Really fucking sad. <laughs> uh, sorry to start the episode on a downer, but this is the reality of, of what's going on. Another reality of what's going on is that apparently masculinity is causing coronavirus to get worse. An article in the New York Times reports that one of the major issues that is impeding men's safety from the coronavirus is masculinity itself. Due to upholding stereotypical norms and notions of masculinity, men are dying at higher rates from COVID-19 than women. The New York Times reports that, quote, experts say the best public health practices have collided with several of the social demands men in many cultures are pressured to follow to assert their masculinity, displaying strength instead of weakness, showing a willingness to take risks, hiding their fear, appearing to be in control. Men's resistance to showing weakness and the tendency to take risks was demonstrated by scientists long before COVID-19. Studies have shown men are less likely than women to wear seatbelts and helmets or to get flu shots. They're more likely to speed or drive drunk. They are less likely to seek out medical care. Some initial research indicates a similar pattern is playing out with the coronavirus. Gallup's COVID-19 tracking poll, updated on Wednesday, has found that American women are more likely than men to take precautions to avoid contracting the coronavirus, including by wearing masks outside the home. Other recent polls have found that men give higher marks to Mr. Trump than women on his handling of the pandemic. The article goes on further to say, uh, quote, Mr. Trump tends to reject anything that can be read as a sign of weakness or lack of control. His behavior and comments after his own hospitalization amid a widening outbreak within his circle have also exposed a White House that flouted the basic precautions endorsed by its own health experts. And many American men who look up to Mr. Trump are taking his cues, choosing to forego protective measures that health officials say are crucial to slowing the spread of the virus. This is not a new problem for those who work in public health messaging. Casey Hust, an associate professor of communication at Washington State University, said prevention campaigns around sexual assault often try to appeal to masculine ideals, making better behaviors worthy of the alpha male. It tends to be more difficult to reach those who identify strongly with traditional masculine characteristics. As an example, the more someone identifies with those masculine traits, the less likely that person will be to use condoms during sex. I think that translates really clearly into why some men choose not to wear masks, she said. It's really about not wanting to show weakness or fear, not wanting to show any vulnerability, end quote. So, yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. Chanel Glenn, how y'all feeling? We're here. (laughs) 
We are here. Yeah. Yeah, it's a lot of the process. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a lot of shit going on right now. Uh, back on the subject of Corona, I mean, I think most of us, if not all of us, are aware that it's, you know, it's spiking again. Cases have increased in Michigan significantly uh, to the point where actually, uh, yeah, Michigan set a new daily COVID record with 2,030 cases two days ago. Wow. Yeah, it's a new all-time record since COVID was at its highest marks in April when it was peaking here in the spring. And yeah, it's, you know, it's actually, we're worse off than we were at the beginning of this thing now. And I think that's what a lot of the um, health professionals are trying to make very clear in the beginning when they were trying to advocate for a more strict lockdown is that, you know, if we allowed this to get to a point where we would be having a second spike in the winter, which is very well in a way. It seems like, yeah, we're steadily on that path towards having some pretty uh, detrimental effects as a result of this pandemic that never really got to go away. And yeah, you know, as was stated there, you know, we have a lot of factors that's leading to people not taking these things as seriously as they should. To the point now where it seems like people just don't even have the capacity to acknowledge that we're still in a pandemic. It's, it's really fucking sad. Yeah, I mean, the child labor stuff really... Ooh. That really rocked me when I saw it and I knew we had to talk about it. I mean, the fact that this pandemic and just this pandemic, of course, along with just the weakness of our like global health organizations and institutions and stuff like that can cause a spike in. I mean, just rolling back all all of the labor protections that people have fought for for children is just jarring. And the fact that kids have to 11 year olds have to go into sex work in order to feed themselves and their families. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't know. It's, yeah. it's, 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 that's, that was definitely the worst news I've heard in a long, long time, but it's, it's really no surprise considering that, you know, school in a lot of ways um, and just having, those institutions for children to, to be kind of like kettled into. That's the only way that we can right. keep a lot of kids safe from being out in the streets while their, ch- their right. families have to toil away in these laborious conditions. You know, and, and, you know, once we have any mild disruption to that system of governance, that system of, you know, social control, you see what all kinds of wild scenarios can spur from just the mildest of interruption, you know, like, how is it that just because, you know, we have a pandemic going on and like the, the powers that be don't want to let up on some of these levers so that people can have the materials they need to be able to really like batten down the hatches and stay, you know, in their domiciles while things are taken care of. And, you know, it's been done in other countries. I mean, Vietnam fucking slaughtered the COVID situation. Like it's almost like that virus doesn't exist there as well. And it's just because they, you know, they took the needed precautions and like all these other you know, these Western economies, these Western empires aren't willing to take those necessary precautions to do that long-term planning. You know, they're they're so c- concerned with the short-term things that they're willing to infuse $3 trillion into the stock market, but they can never fathom the idea of investing $3 trillion into community aid and making sure that the folks who needed a reliable internet and reliable technology and shit so that the kids can properly, you know, go to school from home and shit and, you know, not have to deal with these conditions where now they literally have nowhere else to go but to be on the streets. And, you know, the economy is getting so precarious that their families are allowing them or maybe not, you know, allowing them. It's just the, the, the you know, the fucking shit hand of the deal 
they have to go out and get roped into these scenarios where now they're literally being trafficked more readily. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, it's devastating. And this is literally the tipping point. You know, like we're not even at the stage where things are going to like accelerate or normalize in these conditions. Like we're, we're just getting into the, the real weeds of like how fractured our society may, un, you know, unwind from this. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's something I was going to say is like, yeah, this is the beginning of like a real deal systems breakdown, even with people pushing back. I mean, uh, something that we weren't un, uh, able to talk about. We talked about the uh, police protests in Nigeria, but there's also protests going on against police in Jamaica mm-hmm. and against the Jamaican government as a whole. Protesters feel like their government just didn't do enough to to protect the populace from this disaster, from the pandemic. There was no relief <laughs> provided for people. I mean, even the Jamaican police are protesting their government because their working conditions are horrible. And from what I read, the the police got into a shootout with uh jamaican soldiers uh, with with the military Damn, uh, because they wild. were protesting at a government building out in thailand the people of thailand solidarity to the uh, people of thailand they're pushing back against their monarchy and their government mm-hmm. and the corruption going on there so uh solidarity to them i mean it's just a lot this is really the beginning of systems breakdown if we don't get this shit together and you know the capitalists and the fucking right wingers and authoritarians of all shapes and sizes do not want to get this shit together <laughs> like they like they just don't it, it, that's my thing right because there's so many different ways to be responding to all this you know glenn laid out several like you know people have brains in these positions but it just it it shows you over and over again that folks just don't give a fuck. And as long yeah. as there's dollars to be made, right, right. They're going to make them and you know, obviously don't care about the casualties. So it's so disheartening to hear what's happening to the babies and and I know that, you know, it's you know, that's just one part of of the mess, right? You know, what kinds of addictions and all other kind of things are Right. are spiraling like this this is such a crazy time and when you talk about people who are already under-resourced being stripped of that and still being asked to to perform to provide to you know like government come on what <laughs> yeah yeah it's 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 a it's a sad situation. It's a sad situation, but you know, I think you know, what what gives me hope about the whole thing is the fact that people around the world are pushing back. Like people are not, you know, people are not sitting down just just taking this. Um and so when I read stuff about what's going on in Nigeria and Jamaica and in Thailand and here in the states and people pushing back and and uh, against um those in power who who just want to essentially drive us and themselves and other species into fucking extinction. That's what gives me hope. That's what drives me, you know? I hear you on that point. I do have concerns, though, with that, because I feel that, you know, while we are talking about this subject, you know, um, you know, the capitalists aren't sitting on their hands. And like, especially here in Detroit, they're really mobilizing, especially groups like Amazon. Amazon just bought up um, the state fairgrounds um, and they're building a, a massive warehouse literally across the street from my apartment. Like, it's, it's, they're literally expanding rapidly. And 
if you see the way that these business interests and the local government are colluding and really getting in bed with one another and while at the same time not doing anything to really bring any kind of relief to folks who are in the most precarious situations like I think I saw an article that said something like 8 million people have slid into poverty as a result of all everything that's gone on in the U.S. And it's yeah. like, you know, that's yeah. again, we're literally at the beginning stages of how bad things are going to get. We still haven't had the massive eviction crisis that's looming right now, but it's coming. You know, it's been happening in piecemeal, but we haven't had the massive wave. And, you know, like I was saying about like, you know, Amazon and these different capitalist interests, um, you know, they're not sitting by and just, you know, not doing anything. They're actively planning and moving to take advantage of the scenario, I mean, which is why they've been increasing their wealth so dramatically during this whole pandemic. But beyond that, beyond just increasing their, you know, their financial capital, they're also expanding their, you know, their networks of control into actual physical locales. I can say that pretty adamantly um, just because I'm seeing it, you know, myself in my region. But I'm pretty sure that, you know, this is probably occurring in many more places than, uh, you know, many people are aware of if you're not actively, you know, doing that kind of research. And to me, that's concerning because it's, you know, with the way that precarity is becoming a norm with regards to employment, uh, employment figures have been consistently going up. They haven't really ever let off since the pandemic began. And like you said, you know, the situation in uh, some of those other countries where there's uh literally to the point where children are being, you know, put back into labor. I can foresee us, you know, falling into some similar trappings here uh, with regards to labor rights and just the willingness of people to take on precarious work due to their financial situations being so dire and there being no avenues of support anywhere else, which is why I think it's really important that we start engaging more dual power projects locally for folks. Uh, and, you know, by that, you know, there's a whole gamut to what that means. But go on, Chanel. You're going to say something? You guys, does this not feel like the makings of uh, dormitories? Like, in sorry to bother you. Like, <laughs> yeah. with the eviction stuff looming, like. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, I can foresee yeah, some shit like that. There's the, you know, Bezos got bucks. So let's let's build some 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 Bezos fucking bungalows that people can come in, oh, you know. Buddy up, get yourself a bunk. You know, I can come up with a bunch of B words, but <laughs> you know, like it's, <laughs> it's just like you know. At a point, I wouldn't be surprised if like you don't even get paid in real cash anymore. You get like Amazon dollars, you know, like, and <laughs> you can trade yeah. those. In. Oh no, matter of fact, they just had a fucking thing I saw about how they're doing like payday loan for Amazon employees. Are you, like, you can tap fifty percent of like your your that is earnings. terrifying. Oh if you're God. not making enough money, yeah, like it's, it's it's literally getting that bad. Like they're literally trying to get people to the point where it's going to be indentured servitude again. Yeah, this is going to be like some Kurt Vonnegut player piano shit. I've been <laughs> I've been reading that book and like that. That's what happens in that book is like everything becomes automated. And so you literally only have like two classes of people. You have people who essentially do the knowledge work and who govern over the machines mm -hmm. and the factories and shit like that. Or you're just like a person who lives on some sort of like government assistance and you do like menial labor, like fixing potholes in the street and some shit like mm -hmm. that. That's literally what they're trying to do. That's literally what's what's is happening. Like I mean, yes, the divide, that's what the crafting. Mark Zuckerbergs and, and the and the Bill Gates and the Jeff Bezos, that's what they want for the world. <laughs> so it's just like, you know, us on the left, us who are a part of actual liberatory movements, like we need to get on our shit and really start fucking pushing back, dog. And like 
start radicalizing people. You yeah, know, that's really why I've do. been a lot more open with my shit. You know, I'm like, dog, this shit, this, these these old systems, these old ways of doing things are not working anymore. And I do feel like a lot of people are waking up to that shit, mm-hmm. you know, because where where there is where there is oppression, where there is domination, there will always be resistance. That's just mm-hmm. that's just what it is. Yeah, that's just a fact. You know what I'm saying? So we really have to seize this moment. You know what I'm saying? And and uh yeah we're in a vital time we, we, out we, the we needed to seize the moment back in june honestly and I, i'm not sure if yeah. that moment was seized um i mean i would like to be proven wrong but what i'm seeing it doesn't seem like the left has really come up with a game plan for how it's gonna move and we got folks again to, to bring it back to the news a little bit you know folks like the was it the wolverine watchman who i mean why yeah, they're the clumsy watchman. and very sloppy in the way that they were organizing they were still organizing. They were still yeah. coming together to, you know, try to perform some crazy plot. <laughs> yeah. And like, we can't even get motherfuckers to come together on if we're going to do mutual aid or if we're going to fucking go campaign for Biden. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> yeah. And people, and people want to make jokes like, you know, the PT cruiser shit is trending on Twitter and it is ridiculous. It is ridiculous for like a right wing you know, murderous militia to, you know, utilize a fucking PT cruiser to, you know, you know what I'm saying? Go to war with people. But like, and, and yeah, I mean, fascists and white supremacists tend to be very stupid, idiotic people, but just because you're stupid, dumb does not mean you're not deadly. You know what I'm saying? However, again, to maybe give a more positive and hopeful spin on things. Sure. These movements are terrifying, but those movements are, they're like an Ouroboros, you know, they're a serpent that's going to eat itself. Mm-hmm. Why? Because these, mo- they're not sustainable. They're not built upon a principle of radical care or dual power. You know what I'm saying? These are people who all they know is blood and violence and bullets. They're not going to last, especially the ones that are built upon, you know, this sort of hyper aggressive you know, masculinity. I mean, there's no care in, involved in that. You know what I'm saying? Like a militia member is not going to ask his homeboy uh, who's in the militia, like how his mental health is. Like, that's just not, that's just not something that's going to happen. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, I'm, you know I'm, what not, I'm, saying? I'm not refuting it. That's definitely something that is a weakness on their part. But I, at the same time, they tend to be more well-resourced than us. And yeah, that's while, true. Yeah. Like, you know, they're, they're going to eat themselves in the end of this thing. I mean, I think we, that's, it's pretty evident, self-evident in the fact that we live in a capitalist society that's currently consuming itself. Right. You know, in that same vein, you know, those of us who don't align with that and those who are actively working against it, I think it's very clear that we're, you know, at a bit of a disadvantage and, you know, we could find ourselves wiped out before, you know, they find themselves wiped out. And I'm not trying to be in that position. (laughs) I'm trying to be in the position where we can actually start to change some shit so that we can get off the track of the whole planetary system getting, you know, becoming a devastating, destructing event that's going to render the entire society just, you know, fucking moot. You know, they don't care about that shit. They their whole goal is they want to fucking get in there. They're sick reels or sick kicks, um, you know, fucking subjugate as many people as they can before, you know, right. <laughs> this, the party's over. So mm-hmm. that's, that's their goal. And I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to wait around for them. I hear what you're saying, you know, definitely they're not sustainable. And if they're aware of that or not, like, you know, I don't think it really matters because that's not the game they're playing. They're playing a whole different board game and we're trying to shit. We're trying to flip the table. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's true. You know, I think it's about I think it can be about like who outlasts who. Mm-hmm. And it's just it's just my feeling that like of course any dual power, you know, project, any project of mutual aid that becomes, you know, really substantive needs protection, it needs defense. You know, but people are going to go where they got shelter and food and clothing and where their kids can be safe. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And so that automatically in my opinion, uh, you know, puts puts our movement in a really good position. But again, you know, we have to mobilize and operate and move correctly. You know, we can't we can't be you know, we can't have that. We can't be bullshitting out. Mm-hmm. here. You know what I'm saying? No, and I, mean, I think that that alone can can really, you know, be a benefit. I don't know. It's just my thoughts. Not to draw on this conversation too long, but you know, I do agree with that. You know, like I think it's very important that we start to really consider the reality of you know what we're up against. And like you said, mm-hmm. though, you know, we if as long as we continue to move with community in mind and making sure that you know we're trying to meet people's needs, like we're just trying to make sure that we all can survive on this planet and coexist. And we have motherfuckers who don't want to, don't want to coexist with us. Right. That's basically the bottom line of it. There's motherfuckers who don't want to coexist with us and there's motherfuckers who do. And like, we need to find those people and we need to persuade the people who don't, you know, who may have been, um, you know, uh, what's the word indoctrinated by this system. And, you know, just kind of brought up in that, like, just being very self-individualized. Like if we can start to get people to break away from that and start realizing that there's more power in numbers, you know, and we can really start to do some shit if we can collectivize a little bit more around the community's needs, that'll really start to change the landscape. And when things like, you know, situations with these uh, these militia groups and other extremists pop up, there will be a, a broad base of defense to protect what is providing for, you know, the communities that these groups serve. Absolutely. Community level yeah. responses have to be because, you know, all these shutdown, lockdown, shut-ins, carrying on, you know, mm-hmm. people can't get to grocery stores and shoot in a city. It's already a food desert. Uh, yeah. You know, like it's, and and let alone you know kids in the, in other areas that aren't able to to get their needs met because you know like we said earlier that's what school you know provided a lot of times like we just got stuff all scattered and all over the place and you know those of us who can corral the troops got to corral the troops those who you know cook the meals for the troops got to cook the meals with some love like we need all hands on deck playing whatever part and role we can you know locally and contributing to all the other efforts because, you know, and that's going to bring into play relationships and, and how we relate to one another, how we relate to ourselves, because we're usually just projecting that out on everybody else. So there's going to be a lot of skill building that has to happen um, in the midst of internal skill building, I'll say, in the midst of what I hope, you know, we can retool externally too. you know, get folks with some some skills that can be useful uh, in the revolution. Absolutely. Absolutely. So now I think we can go into our extended uh, conversation here. Glenn, did you want to take us into this conversation? Uh, Because, I mean, you suggested it. I think you wanted to talk about the issue of top-down organizing in our movements. And it was spurred by just a recent Twitter post that that we uh, made, that the organization made, quoting Donald Cox, Field Marshal Donald Cox, 
of the Black Panther Party in which he said, instead of the struggle for the liberation of Black people becoming the most important thing, it was the party that became the most important thing. And all that Marxist-Leninist paraphernalia that most of the orgs calling themselves communists was based on. So, Glenn, can you kind of lead us into that in that conversation and what you have experienced in your in your time organizing in your community and, and the issues of, you know, hierarchy and even domination in, in what's supposed to be a movement of liberation? I mean, to put it frankly, man, we could, we could just go back to what Donald Cox said, right? Like, these motherfuckers just want to sell some T-shirts, man. That's That's what it is. Like, a lot of these motherfuckers ain't really about it. A lot of these people find an organization that they can vibe and, you know, jive with the jargon and figure out how to get into the, the inner workings. And then they just cement themselves in power. And it's it's, it's really unfortunate because, you know, uh, you have a lot of really vibrant, energetic folks who come into these different orgs and they want to engage in projects and they, and they find themselves getting bounded and uh, different tape, you know, different, like, just like bureaucracy they have to deal with. And, you know, a lot of that, like, you know, as we, as you mentioned, comes from that, that top-down hierarchical structure, you know. Um, it's unfortunate, really, because a lot of times that, that just comes from the fact that people develop a lot of their skills working in, like, the nonprofit sectors and things. And even some of the folks who end up becoming stifling elements in these organizations, you know, they don't do so intentionally in some ways. They 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 just happen to do so because the the techniques and the strategies that they've been taught to employ can uh, result in those same mechanisms being utilized, you know. So things end up becoming, you know, very hierarchical, things become very bureaucratic, knowledge gaps fill the organization, and you, you get a lot of gatekeeping. And I think that's something that has to be grappled with across all these movements, because even if you, you know, you identify as autonomous, you identify as a non-hierarchical cadre of folks, you know, you can easily just out of practice find yourself getting wrapped up in to those those ways of being where you, you find yourself being the leader when you didn't intend on that being the case or, you know, someone who may be, you know, actively trying to uh, grab power that they, you know, may have identified within the ranks of some folks and uh, really kind of, you know, leverage those for abusive or self-aggrandizing um, means. And so, you know, I think in that thread, you know, we, we kind of outlined a lot of those different elements through quotes from Lorenzo Combo Irvin, Donald Cox, and I think it was... Kawasi Belagoon yeah, was also Kawasi another Belagoon. one. And like, you know, yeah. I think all of those, all of those quotes kind of touched on, you know, different threads along those lines to speak to what I was saying, though, you know, just from my, some of my experiences, like it's just been the, the biggest holdup uh, for me personally and for other folks who I organize with in the city. It's just that, you know, you have to go through this board before you can go through this committee, before you can bring it to the general membership. And it's just like, why why do we have to go through so many different hoops when if we have good ideas that could be of benefit to the organization as a whole, and more specifically the the community in which that organization claims to serve, why not try to foster people to be able to take the reins when they they come to these ideas, or if they you know they come to realizing the potential of you know being able to push on an issue? And a lot of times things can find you know you can find things dead on the cuttering floor before it even reaches the general membership, just because of a cadre of folks within that, you know, that committee, that that 
bureaucratic structure that may be bogged down with a series of different laws and structures that just, you know, ways the to him and ha. And I'm not saying that, you know, an organization, especially of, you know, the ones that reaches a certain mass of people doesn't need some kind of structure in order to maintain itself. That's not the case, but I don't think that an organization should get in the way of people being out, you know, able to move out in an autonomous way when it's not moving against the aims of the org. If it's moving in conjunction with the org, or at least in tandem, you know, maybe a few steps removed from the overall goals, but, it, you know, it's covering an area that maybe the org itself uh, had a blind spot towards. I think that that form of organizing really needs to be brought into question when we feel that certain degrees of experience kind of highlight somebody's ability to lead. Because a lot of times there are people who may be natural organizers, natural revolutionaries who haven't had the time and the comfort and the, you know, the privilege to be able to really engage with political theory like that. And maybe they need to push in that direction, but their ability to naturally connect with people and to resonate with people through their lived experience may be greater than anyone who's read a thousand books. You never know. You know, that's the thing with organizing and really engaging with people and meeting people where they're at is that sometimes you have to be willing to step back. You know, you see this shit with the, the celebrities and stuff, right, who want to create a black party and all this other shit, a black political party uh, and fucking people like Ice Cube who want to say that, you know, they're they're the ones having the fucking the conversations with the powers that be to set the agenda for the people who they're not even engaged with in their communities to the degree that they need to, because, you know, they wouldn't be trying to take the charge. They would be standing behind somebody who's definitely rooted in community, giving them the resources they need to be successful and using their platforms to uplift real messages instead of trying to set the narrative and the tone themselves. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's, that's, oh man, that's great insight. That's great insight. And that's why it's so important to, I mean, you have to remove hierarchical thinking, man. You just have to. And and I, I wanted to read a bit from, from a text. All those three figures that you mentioned, former Black Panthers, uh, Kawasi Belagoon and Lorenzo Kimboa Irvin and, and Field Marshal Cox are really great. But another figure who's also great is uh, Russell Maroon Schultz. He has a great collection of writings called Maroon the Implacable. And he was a former member of the Black Panther Party and a part of the uh, the Black Liberation Army. The dude, the dude is just a shit. He's an incredible thinker. He like escaped from prison like two, three times, I believe. He, uh, I mean, he got caught every time and put in solitary confinement, but he's a really wonderful thinker. And so I just wanted to read from one of his essays, which is called The Dragon and the Hydra. The Dragon and the Hydra, a historical study of organizational methods. And I just wanted to read a little bit of that intro because it kind of correlates to what Donald Cox was talking about. So I'm just going to read a bit from that. Quote, you have 15, 20 years of civil wars and people's struggles to go through, not only to change the conditions, but in order to change yourselves and make yourselves fit for political rule, end quote. Karl Marx addressing the International Workingmen's Association, the body that would later become the first international. Marx's words hit close to home. I've been involved in such struggles for 40 years, a product originally of the Black Liberation Movement of the 1960s and subsequently of being held as a political prisoner in the United States since 1972. Over that period, I participated in a number of mass and party formations. It never fails to amaze me how much energy and time is dedicated towards establishing the claims of various groups to be the so-called vanguard of some struggle for justice, when in the end, most of these exercises turn out to be sterile when they don't degenerate into fratricidal conflicts. 
Furthermore, I'd hazard to say that the entire history of Marxist-Leninist social change has known few other methods, leading me to say further that a sober analysis of that history points to a struggle for supremacy, not only over the bourgeois ruling class, but also against the working class and all other oppressed people, against any and all formations that escape the control of these so-called vanguard groups. Thus, their mantra of doing everything to seize power for the working class and oppressed is a farce. If there has ever been a Marxist-Leninist vanguard party that has found itself uh, in power and did not subsequently follow this script, I'm not aware of it. While arguments can be all, uh, can always be found to rationalize why it was is necessary to resort to such measures, many such arguments do not make sense initially. A closer look always seems to force adherents to fall back on the mantra of the flawed individuals who did not hold to the true principles of democratic centralism. Excuse me. These are wide open to interpretation and manipulation in order to seize the initiative in a struggle for domination, as opposed to trying to make a concrete analysis of concrete co conditions as V.I. Lenin instructed. Yeah. So right at the, right at the beginning uh, of this essay, he, he um, addresses a lot of these issues. And what he does, what he does in this essay is he breaks down the issues of, uh, you know, this, of the concept of the, of the, um, of the Vanguard Party and democratic centralism, and he go he really gives a historical analysis of the various groups uh, of the African diaspora. He uses examples such as Haiti and Jamaica and the Surinamese people to really show decentralized movements in the diaspora that were able to fight off European imperialism and colonialism without the need of a vanguard party or that sort of democratic centralism sort of form. Glenn, what are, what are your thoughts on that, on, on the bit that I read? What are your thoughts? Do you, do you think that connects well to what Donald Cox was saying at all? Yeah, I mean, to me, it sounded like he was hitting, you know, on a, a lot of the same cylinders, you know, like it's, to me, it sounded like, you know, he, from a different lens of experience, sounds like he was basically just kind of, I mean, I guess it wouldn't be a different lens. They're in the same organization, but, you know, just from his perspective in the organization, just seeing how if you don't get away from that framing, you know, and, you know, we, we know this from the lessons from, that have been brought from the experience of past Panthers, you know, that, that's been recorded, just like how it can create such infighting when it's not conducive to the cause, right? Like, and, and in a lot of ways, it could be self-defeating. And it's a slow self-defeat because it takes time to really build that strong base of power to get to the point where, you know, it'll kind of just fizzle out on its own. Because it seems like that's the typical reaction, historically anyway. Can you pinpoint any <laughs> any groups of that nature that have been able to extend a political program that has maintained a base of power for longer than a decade? I can't think of one. No, not at all. <laughs> not, 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 not at all. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's just unfortunate. It's sad. It's, it's even worse to me when you have, you know, people of color replicating that same bullshit. You know what I'm saying? And we see it all the time. We see authoritarians in our movements. Mm -hmm. And it's heartbreaking because it's just like, they don't recognize that they are replicating the exact same sort of domination and hierarchy that has caused their their people group to be in the place that they're at. Yeah, I, some, I sometimes question if they don't recognize that, honestly. Mm. Really? I do, because I feel really? like there's some people who maybe recognize that maybe they can secure a seat of power for the duration of, you know, what, what's going to be left of <laughs> what's going to come from our society. Right. 
Mm-hmm. And maybe right. they can feel like they can go out on a bang of being like, oh, I was the great whatever. But I don't know. But I know in a lot of ways, there are definitely folks who are engaging with this. And there's just there's a gap with regards to those formations of the past. And they think that, you know, it was just dissolved from external forces without any internal conflicts and contradictions emerging to help fester those, you know, those different tensions that, you know, ultimately led in the dissolution of these groups. I think is, you know, a lot of people don't they don't want to acknowledge that they think that if, you know, okay, if I get it together with my homies this way, you know, I I really make sure I engage with it like this. I put it this way. I'm amassing cloud online and I'm resonating with the people in this way. Or whatever the the fact is, is the lead people to think that they could do things differently. They don't ever grapple right. with the contradictions that come with wrestling with that type of power, you know. Mm-hmm. And if you're not coming at it from a non higher point, where you know you're making it lateral, you're making sure that decisions aren't just being pinned on you know certain particularly groomed leadership. You know, you you got to have a certain kind of intellectual and political caliber to you know to what you're pushing. You got to fit all these different criteria to quote unquote be a member of the vanguard, right? And it's just like if you're right. if you're not meeting those those aims, then you you're not it. And it's just mm-hmm. like, but that's not how we get anywhere. Cause that's how we that's how we reproduce where we're at, right? Because right now the issue is like, well, you know, if you're not wealthy, you're not it. You you just can't do it. You know, you ain't got the capital to make shit happen. So just get down there and get exploited. You know, that's your position. And that, you know, and we're gonna reproduce similar dynamics if we, you know, lead it up to charismatic leaders you know even if it's not necessarily all charismatic leaders that make up the quote-unquote vanguard you know that is a very deliberate and very you know necessary element of that and there are people who relish in that you know people who really vibe with being the the social butterfly who can really connect with people on you know that level the social level but they aren't wrestling with the fact that there are times when you need to step back and let others lead absolutely Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's just unfortunate. I mean, we're replicating this, the the exact same issues. And, and the reality of the situation is there are so many what uh, Paulo Ferreri, uh, his book, uh, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, phenomenal book. But, you know, there's just a lot of what he calls sub oppressors around. You know what I mean? Like you have oppressors, you have sub oppressors, which are, you know, uh, people who are oppressed that, uh, again, uh, replicate the exact same forms of domination and, and subjugation uh, that they have that they have lived under, and it's it's just very unfortunate, and and it just doesn't you know it just it doesn't bring us any closer to liberation, you know if 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 rulers and and authority figures and bosses are the things that have gotten us to this point, why the fuck would more rulers and bosses you know on the opposite side of things get us closer to 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 liberation, you know what I mean and that's something that Donald Cox talked about, right, is is within the Black Panther Party, how David Hilliard and Bobby Seale and, and uh, Huey be- just became these sort of savior figures, these messianic figures, these great men, you know what I mean? And who had complete and total control over every single decision that happened. And it's just like, that's just not the world that we want to live in. I mean, you're, you're, ju- you're just replicating what already exists, it, what already exists, not to be uh, not to say that over again, but I just I just really want to home in on that. You know, Chanel, do you have any thoughts on this? I mean, it absolutely makes me think of the, you know, just the internalized oppression piece, because it's so hard to get past your hard wiring. <laughs> 
Like that is the fight of our lives. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I'm sitting here yeah. thinking like, okay, how are we going to really make a dent into things? Um, and it's really those early years, right? Up to like age eight, where the imprints are made, the scripts are inserted by that time. And we, we tend to, to follow them throughout the rest of our lives. So it's, on one hand, I'm glad that, you know, those circumstances kind of bring folks together in weird ways, but so that people can be with their families and teach them and all that stuff. But then, you know, that's assuming that they aren't also trying to, you know, make sure they're not getting kicked out the house and all these other things. So like the conditions aren't ripe for us to be able to take hold of education, you know, and, and really being able to shift it from a let's make sure this generation, you know, as many as we can, can get through the proper wiring, right? Like it's, it's always a work in progress. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, and I think the binary view of life, you know, all or none, black or white, it's either Democrat or Republican. Like we are so used to, if it's not that one, it's the other one, but like there's way more choices out there. So we we definitely get caught into that. And and when we're in a stress response, we're not trying to be presented with all these different choices and options. We want to we want to narrow down thing, you know, so I think that's what, you know, highlights the education efforts of groups like BSA so that we can know what our options are and and see beyond the, the script that we're being presented. Yeah, those are my thoughts. Yeah. That's that's wonderful. That is wonderful insights. Thank you so much, Glenn, for taking the lead on that conversation and and really, really uh, opening us up to a conversation that we need to have more on uh, on our side of on our side of things. Thank you. So we're going to switch up now. We're going to go to uh, Dr. Chanel's segment on Press Yourself. Very excited for what more uh, nuggets of wisdom she's going to drop on us. Dr. Chanel, would you like to go ahead and and get into your segment and just talk to us about, you know, what's What's been on your mind? Bless us, whatever, with whatever knowledge you're feeling today, even on this topic of, of hierarchy or, or whatever it may be uh, that you've been uh, reflecting on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I appreciate the swing my way. Unoppress yourself. Um, yes, it's, it's quite a time to learn such a skill. OK, and I would say it's a, <laughs> a plethora of skills all in one. I have been thinking a lot lately about how I'm I'm tired. <laughs> I'm tired. So many of us are just plumb tired and want to check out, want to numb out, want to disengage, just not think about any of it. And that is an okay response. Like that is understandable, you know, and being a BIPOC, you ain't got no choice but to think about it. So it's like, what do I do with all of this? You know, it's 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 tiring and we've got to have uh, means and ways um, to engage with ourselves and engage with one another to shift the balance within. And then hopefully, you know, that gives us the strength and the the charge that we need to to keep on and keep on keeping on, I'll say. So I've been thinking a lot about practices during this time that can be restorative, nurturing, helpful. Seasons are changing, getting ready for this good first COVID winter and lots of... 
Okay, we we experienced this when it was like warm, you know, good old lockdown. Yeah. But like, it's about to be real live when you you know the the few options we had are even further limited, right? Like in terms of yeah, a lot of people not really about that outdoor life during the winter. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. we, I think now's the time for us to really be thinking ahead in that regard, you know. Not just from the standpoint of of practical things, you know. I I will admit I did order some extra tissue and paper towels <laughs> to get ready. Yeah, I, I don't. Yeah, but yeah, I've been I've been I've been I got a storage of masks. I've been saving up on masks and freaking okay. hand sanitizer, and I am I am not playing. I'm wiping everything down because I yeah, it's finna be flu yeah. and cold season and. They talking about mm-hmm. it's a sex wave. Yeah, it's not a joke. It is not a joke. So we got to prepare on that hand. And I think we, we've we got to, to think about the emotional, social, cognitive ramifications of the isolation, of the just natural decline in mood that a lot of people experience, whether they have a diagnosis or not. We are influenced and affected by the light. The sun. So I have been having a lot of conversations with people about getting ready, getting ready. What do you need? What do you know you need when things are starting to feel a little wonky for you? And definitely try to tap into that more intense level because let's not act like it won't go there. It, it very well may go there. And I'd rather us try to think ahead and write some lists so that we've already vetted some coping strategies. And, and already thought through, you know, additional resources or, or uh, social connections that you'll make or different things that one can do. Uh, even now, starting to try out different things to to add to your personalized kind of calming or coping plan. I think now is a time to 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 make sure that we've got as many things as possible at our disposal to to help shift the balance. So. What I wanted to do today was to talk about a few of those. I'm super with it. Let's hear it. Let's get into them. So we're all dealing with a lot of intense, powerful emotions. You know, not always intense, but it gets there. And when it does, um, we want to be able to tap into some mindful coping strategies to help downregulate ourselves. You know, that's the, the, the aim. So then we can do the good thinking and get to the problem solving, but we got to address what's happening in the body. We try to stay in the head and figure, think everything through, but your body is on a 10, boo-boo. I'm going to need you to sit down, okay? And we're going to do some relaxation to de-escalate the stress response in your body because you can't be stressed and relaxed at the same time. One of them will win. Let us empower relaxation, all right? So first thing being diaphragmic breathing, right? Sometimes I don't even refer to the diaphragm. I'm like, breathe as deep as you can, okay? (laughs) Into your chest (laughs) and belly. But generally what you're looking for is you want to, when you take the breath in for your, uh, if your hand's on your belly, for it to come outward. Um, It's easy to practice this if you lay on the floor and you put a book on your stomach and the objective being to make the book, you know, go up and down with your breathing. We want to practice that and, you know, do it a few times a day just to get your body used to breathing in this way. And what you'll notice is when you're in a more elevated mood, 
that this type of breathing helps the body to tap into the parasympathetic nervous system and de-escalate you. You can do, you know, 10, 15 breaths three times a day. That's good practice. Practice makes habit with all of these things. And there's all kinds of breathing strategies. Another one that I really like is called heart-focused breathing, where you put your hand on your heart and you're going to be taking some breaths in through the nose and really envisioning that air coming in through your nostrils and passing down your throat and windpipe going into the heart. You can play with this one a little bit and make the the air a color that is soothing and gratifying to you and imagine your heart being filled up with that color. The objective is to bring your focus into the body, give the brain a little bit of a break to get your blood flow circulating differently and to establish a sense of coherence and take as many breaths in a row as you can. Don't stop when your brain says it's not working. Say, just keep going a few more breaths because often we stop too soon when we're doing our breathing strategies and like, oh, that shit don't work. Just come on, keep doing it. You know, don't give up on the right thing. You know, if you don't give up on something, give up on being stressed and, and do these damn breaths. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, I know that feeling. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So again, you know, few mundane moments throughout the day, like when you're brushing your teeth, you can practice your breathing stuff. At any given point, you can practice these skills and that practice is going to help your body remember that it works. So then when you're in a tougher moment, your body and your mind can align and and, and you'll, we're always trying to think of what can I do right now? So giving your body the practice, it makes it more likely that it's going to pull that into focus when you need it. All right. So the next one is a five senses exercise. So I'm going to describe it to you guys. But this one, um, the aim is to become, to get out of your head and focusing more fully on the environment and what's around you. So for 30 seconds, you'll focus on every sound you hear. Voices, traffic noise, machinery noises, sound of, you know, heating or air conditioning units. You might hear things moving around, sounds your body makes. Trying to keep your attention fully on those sounds. And if your mind wanders, you just gently bring it back to what you hear. Then for 30 seconds, we'll switch to another sense and smell. What do you smell? What fragrances, odors, scents from your own body or from the environment do you notice? And you keep your attention on that and refocus whenever your mind wanders. So it's just a gentle, you know, all right, we'll get back to, to inhaling and, and, and seeing what you smell. The next one is touch. So for 30 seconds, focus on your sense of touch, including temperature and texture. So you might notice the pressure where your body touches the floor or the chair, um, different textures in your clothing, and just giving yourself a few moments to tune in to what you feel, what you notice. You know, the temperature of your table or, or desk may vary from the temperature of your computer. Like, that counts. And just focusing on that for a few moments. Then 
for 30 seconds, focus on visual sensations, observing colors and shapes, noticing what's around you, the different sizes of things. And again, the mind is going to wander. You don't even have to, you know, shit on yourself about it. Just just bring your attention back to the sense that you're focusing on. And in uh, this case, it was the uh, visual sensations. Last but not least is 30 seconds of focusing on your sense of taste. What residual taste do you maybe have in your mouth? Bitterness, sweet, sour, salty. Is there a little more nuance there? Some more subtle taste that you notice? Or maybe even a taste that you'd like to be uh, visiting with in that moment. Um, but just observing. What do you notice? And, and this is something you can practice, you know, two, three times a day. The objective with all of this is to give your brain and body the opportunity to, to strengthen this muscle of tuning in differently, tuning into yourself gently, compassionately, and, and, and not having to, you know, go into the, I shouldn't be thinking about that or trying to push anything away. Just notice where your thoughts are and, and refocus. And it's that skill, being able to notice where you are, identify it and label it and shift your focus to what you want it to be on. That is what we're after. That's what we want to practice with this sort of activity. And again, taking the time to describe things, that's practicing your awareness skills, observational skills. It's a lot happening in once, but it does help in tense moments to downregulate the body. And, and, and we want to do that. We got to turn our attention to our body when we're, you know, triggered and have elevated emotions. So then after we cool off, then we want to think and process to see what was going on that needs our attention and engage in those actions. When we try to think while we're really stressed and elevated, often we can get uh, caught up on downward spirals or really unproductive cyclical ways of thinking. And, you know, then you got to ride that wave, you know? <laughs> so then you de-escalate naturally or you may engage in something to help you shift your energy. And then, you know, we, we, we try to think things through. Um, but the body is, is not our enemy, it's, it's our friend. And we want to, I have this analogy I've been using lately. And as we have these podcasts, you guys will hear me talk about some of the crazy ways I, I think about things. But the way in which we want to respond to our emotions is with a gentle curiosity. Um, and I, I, I <laughs> the metaphor I use is like a horror film. Okay, so you guys know how Black people are when we hear the noises in the horror film, right? Like, what do they, what do the Black characters yeah. get to do? <laughs> uh, we, we react quite quickly. Yes. Uh, in comparison <laughs> We get the hell out of Dodge, right? Like, don't ask no questions. Like, (laughs) um, yeah, yeah. That's 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 the way that we tend to respond to our emotions, right? Like, straight away moving into avoidance or suppression or things that work very much in the immediate, but they backfire on us and they aren't good strategies to lean on and depend on. We actually would benefit from responding to our internal world the way white people respond to noises in horror films. <laughs> okay? That is funny. That is hilarious. <laughs> when they hear a noise in the film, the stereotype is right. They get really curious. What was that? I don't know. Let's go see. Yeah. 
go check it out and then yeah 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 you go here and i'll go here like fucking idiots yeah, yeah. you know but it but that oh that inquisitiveness we benefit from actually applying inwardly and instead of brushing off right, what right. we're experiencing trying to you know understand it differently see what messages we have for ourselves underneath the noise and right. the strategies we review today help get rid of some of the noise de-escalate and tend to the body and then we can you know respond with that gentle curiosity and that is my contribution today for unoppress yourselves a very much needed segment that was, thank you very much for that chanel yes you're welcome thank you that was i will be going back and listening to this episode awesome. on multiple occasions yeah, yeah. I feel like yo, I feel like this was like a meditation uh, <laughs> uh video. Yo, I was I was doing the practices, man. I was doing the belly breathing all the time. Like, uh, because I am stressed. I am stressed. It's it's a lot going on. But thank you so much, Dr. Chanel, for this. You know, we really need those practices and disciplines to to really sustain us and to really, you know, get us through and get us, you know, in tune with our bodies, especially when there's so much going on in the world you know we want we need concrete practices that can ground us that can get us thinking clearly and rationally uh on to our next segment our final segment black joy this has been a bit of a downer of an episode so you know we 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 gonna try to leave on a positive note leave on a hopeful note that's what we're about here on uh, a thousand cuts this is not a doomer or a gloomer or whatever whatever the dumbass twitter terms they coming up with these days a sort of podcast so we're trying to leave y'all with, with something that's um with some things that are inspiring us or or giving us positivity and good vibes or that we're just enjoying. So Chanel, would you like to start us off? Black joy, black joy. You know, even when we've had the the segments earlier today, um, in in this episode and the dreariness of it all, you know. I do take courage and find joy in the fact that we're fighters. And we, although we get tired of fucking fighting, I I appreciate that about my people, that there is um, a fire that burns within us, you know, and we can strengthen one another. So I, I've been taking joy in friends, you know, just little insignificant ways of reaching out, but Nowadays, it, it means so much. And, and then, like I said, I'm, I think really reviewing, you know, what we're going to need coming up in the, in the coming months. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> don't, um, don't let your anxiety about not having been in touch with people uh, get you, keep you from ensuring that you have some social connections coming up this winter. All right. Don't let pride keep you from engaging with folks. <laughs> <laughs> but that's it for me. Uh, Glenn, how how about you? I would say uh, just connecting with folks, as Chanel was saying. You know, we just had the, the Liberation Festival here in Detroit a couple of weeks ago and just kind of decompressing from the process of organizing and participating in that. It was a really good event. I had a lot of stuff going on. We had some great lessons taught, some great lessons learned. I mean, create some space for some healing. So that was always very necessary. And then, you know, also just giving back to the community. Uh, we had a free store, so folks were able to come and get clothes and things of that nature. And we were giving out free food all weekend. So it was nice just to see folks who needed, you know, just basic things, having some of their 
uh, most basic needs met. And, you know, from there, just this last couple of weeks since then, I've been kind of just like, you know, relaxed and kind of taking a little bit of time to myself and to my family to just unwind a bit, even though I'm still not the best at that. I'm still working while I'm trying to unwind, but I've been taking more time than usual to try to actually get some unwinding in. So that's been nice. And then that's been bringing me some joy recently, it's particularly the part of spending more time with my family, my son and my partner. That's great. That's great. Yeah, I guess for me, um, what's been bringing me joy is uh, I've been getting back into comedy, like watching comedy, watching stand up and just laughing just trying to take more time to laugh. You know, I try to do the best that I can every day to practice gratitude, you know, with the things in my life that I have, the gifts that I have, my family, my friends, the fact that I have food in my mouth and clothes on my back and shelter over my head. And, you know, it's, it's kind of easy to lose sight of those things with everything that's going on. So I try to, I try to do that. And really podcasting, I've been leaning more into that, doing more work with podcasting and that's something that, that 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 brings me a lot of joy and something that I really want to do in my life. So, yeah, those are really the main things for me. Probably going to try to watch some horror movies or something like that for this month. Um, but, yeah, those those are the main things for me that are bringing me joy. Just trying to be grateful in comedy and podcasts and really be helping me as of late. So thank you all so much. For listening to yet another episode thank you, thank you. of A Thousand Cuts. Yes, we appreciate your viewership. This has been a BSA podcast. <laughs> Did you say viewership? Yes, viewership. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't catch that until the end. I didn't catch that until the end. But um, thank y'all so much for listening. Thank y'all so much for supporting. Again, guys, please grace and patience with us. There's just so much going on. We do the best that we can. We don't have, you know what I mean, a, a studio or sponsors or anything like that, but we're still trying to make it work for y'all and to just really connect with y'all and, and just bring out some good, solid content, entertainment. Um, but thank you all so I mean, much. giving y'all that real authentic black experience. Hey, right? yes. Yeah, well, we ain't got no, this ain't no, this ain't NPR, <laughs> dog, like I said before. This ain't We're NPR. bringing it how we got it, so y'all take it how it comes. This ain't no loudspeakers network. We ain't got no corporate sponsors. We are sponsored by y'all, okay? <laughs> so thank you so much for y'all listening. Thank you so much for any any sort of feedback, any sort of order, sort of uh, uh, of just support. Um, again, this is your host Demetrius here with my comrades Chanel and Glenn, and we will catch y'all next episode. Y'all take care, solidarity, and keep fighting. Peace. Love y'all. Peace. Sayonara.